The last year or so I've been reflecting a lot upon the teaching of embodiment and what that actually means for me and for all of us. And I think it's a, it's a very, again, I think it can mean a lot of different things, but one way that I think of embodiment as being almost a synonym for nibbana or for full awakening, in which there's been such a naturalization of ethics, of the Brahma-viharas, of kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity, that they really become, have become the very most natural, unhesitating way of being in the world in all moments. Where there's been such a, a naturalization of the understanding so central in this path, that those understandings truly become the lens through which we see, through which we act, through which we think, through which we engage with the world. So embodiment I see as that synonym with nibbana, but I also see the Eightfold Path of Awakening almost being a practice of embodiment. And, you know, what we do here um, is much more than just learning to be present or learning to be mindful that is certainly a part of, of what we do here. But when you read the early texts and really kind of reflect on what the Buddha taught, it was, it was something, well, quite a radical teaching of awakening. And he did not reserve that awakening for a select few or an, a spiritual elite. In fact, he said this was really almost the, the birthright of anyone who practiced. And of course, when you read the text, you know that there's, there's a lot about establishing sati and about establishing a present moment recollection. But it is a part of a path, and it's part of a path that is in the service of awakening. And I know because of many people's histories and sometimes difficult histories with goals and striving and direction, sometimes there's a little bit of an allergy around that transferred into the practice, you know, and a feeling like not going anywhere. You know, it all sounds good, doesn't it? You know, being still and, you know, the flowers bloom by themselves and all that, you know. And, uh, you know, it's, it's nice. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but if you actually look at the text, of course, it's peppered with goals because it has a sense of direction. If we want to use the word goals, maybe that's not a very palatable word. But it certainly has a sense of direction, it's a sense of cultivation, and everything zeroes in on what the Buddha called really to be the heart of his teaching, which is this unshakable liberation of the heart. So in my understanding, you know, the Buddha did teach this path. I mean, we could call it a developmental path, or we could call it a path of deepening. It's a path that has a beginning, and all of us had a beginning 
in this practice and you think of the many reasons why you may have come to this practice and how many people come really through the doorway often of pain much more than through the doorway of joy. That often we come through that doorway of just trying to make sense of our experience, trying to make sense of our world, trying to understand what's actually going on within us. And also in that doorway and coming through that doorway, of course, there's some glimmer of possibility of transformation. But we all have a beginning. Sometimes it's in pain. Sometimes our beginning is in confusion. Sometimes our beginning is in bewilderment. And these are very timeless beginnings in this path. And yet the path has this direction to the unshakable liberation of the heart in which the patterns of delusion and greed and ill will are truly uprooted. Sometimes the Buddha speaks about Nibbana as blowing out the fires of greed, hatred, and ill will. But that liberation of the heart, of course, has an expression in unshakable equanimity, in unshakable kindness, in unshakable compassion. So this word path is, is very important because it is something much broader than only formal practice. It's something much broader than, and deeper than sitting with our eyes closed or walking mindfully. There's a story from Ajahn Chah where, you know, a young monk comes to Ajahn Chah and he's complaining about all, all, all the many responsibilities he has to do in the day and that he doesn't have enough time to sit more. And, and Ajahn Chah looked at him and he says, I, I've seen lots of chickens who sit really well and I've never seen a liberated chicken. Yeah. So, this is very much a kind of a twofold path. I mean, the roots of that twofold path are, are very much shared because certainly the roots of this twofold path have a foundation in integrity and ethics. It's really the indispensable starting point of the path. So one dimension of the path is, is really concerned with inner development, with everything that we're actually engaged in here developing the capacities of our hearts and minds for a very deep collectedness, for a very deep calmness, for a very established mindfulness. We're developing that inner capacity to investigate, to apply and to sustain intention and to come to see things moment to moment as they actually are, rather than through the lens of confusion or or desire or aversion. And I I sometimes refer to this kind of inner cultivation as a, a growing capacity to lay down our arguments with the unarguables. When we hear, you know, we hear that phrase a lot, I think, in Buddhist teaching, you know, come to see things the way they actually are. And, and I just want to point out, this is not a statement of, of ideology. It's a very, very, very rooted 
statement that points to a growing understanding of of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness in all its dimensions, a, a deepening understanding of the changes that touch all our lives, the, a deepening awareness and acknowledgement of the universal stories of aging, sickness, and death, and a deepening understanding of these views of self that divide us from all things, from the world, and that the views of self that incur these repetitive and painful experiences of contractedness. And we come through that deepening of those capacities of investigation and mindfulness. We we come to understand the, the inwardly generated patterns and beliefs for us, moment to moment, that do cause struggle and despair and anger and fear and craving. We understand suffering and its causes in order to bring it to suffering to an end. But the second dimension of the path, I think, concerns itself essentially with what we do and how we do what we do. It's the dimension of the path that's really concerned how we engage with the world, what kind of footprint each of us leaves upon the world with our thoughts and our words and our acts that splinter into thousands of consequences, many of which we cannot even see. It's the dimension of the path that's concerned with how we live the life we have how we live with those we love and care for, how we engage with those we struggle with, and how we care about the countless beings that we don't know and don't see. So there's a one dimension of the path that's that inner cultivation, and this other dimension of the path is really about embodiment. Recognizing every moment of every day whether we're silent or whether we're speaking, whether we're acting or whether we're still, whether we're alone or whether we're together with others, we are always practicing and always embodying something in every moment. And this is a dimension of the path that's really concerned with alignment rather than with dissonance with unification rather than with fragmentation. It's really concerned with the ways in which we live, our lives are lived in the light of our deepest values and aspirations. The way it's concerned with how much we live in the light of, for example, the integrity we know to be so precious. Whether our lives are lived in the light of our understandings about what perpetuates suffering and struggle and about what brings it to an end. I think embodiment is concerned with the questions of how much our lives and our words and our acts and our choices and our thoughts really reflect the kindness and the compassion that we know to be so essential and how much our lives are lived in the light of letting go and non-clinging. 
Now, these two dimensions of the path, I don't think they're linear and I don't think they're hierarchical. We don't have to wait for wise view or wise understanding to fully mature before we begin to live in the light of wise view, of knowing how things actually are, ungraspable, changing, uncertain. We don't have to wait for unshakable metta and compassion to arise before we begin to live our lives with a commitment to metta and compassion. Inner development, cultivation, and embodiment, I think, really do go hand in hand. They are interdependent processes. There's a piece from the Samyutta Nikaya The Buddha says, looking after oneself, one looks after others. Looking after others, one looks after oneself. How does one look after others? By looking after oneself. By practicing mindfulness, developing it, and making it grow. How does one look after oneself? By looking after others. By patience, non-harming, friendliness, and care. I think for many of us, and I hope actually for many of us, that this question of embodiment is a challenging and even a deeply troubling question. It's not meant to be a consoling question. It's not meant to be a reassuring question. It's actually meant to be a challenging question. Because I think for many uh, people, you know, we can be so painfully aware of dissonance. We can be so painfully aware of the gaps that are real and present in our hearts and our lives. You know, we can deeply value metta. I mean, I don't think anybody argues with the value of metta. We deeply value metta. And yet how often... Do thoughts of ill will or judgment arise? We can deeply value compassion. Again, I don't think any of us would argue with the value of compassion. And yet we know sometimes it's easier to abandon things, to to turn away, to not look in the eyes of the homeless person, to instead move into judgment and to blame. We know the toxic power of craving in truth. You know, that endless appetite of not enough. And yet that second plate of food looks really good. The fantasy looks so tempting. We can set our intentions to be present, to be mindful, to be aware, only to find ourselves once more kind of enticed into some grand narrative or some grand emotional storm, or else we just fall asleep. We can certainly have the intention to speak with kindness and with care, but as one student put it, you know, I open my mouth and samsara pops out. These are difficult, difficult dissonance, areas of dissonance to be mindful of, aren't they? Do they make you squirm a bit? You know, I hope they make you squirm a bit. 
not on not in a terrible way, but you know these are real questions in the past. You know, I mean, just think about even having a regular practice in our life. You know, and how many how many times we leave a retreat. You know, I'm on this. You know, <laughs> I'm practicing every day. You know, oh, there's a really good movie on. You know, or you know, I'm too busy, or I don't feel well. You know. Um, or we can be so entranced by distractedness. Now, I'm going to go on with this list for a while. So, you know, I mean, uh, you might feel your heart sinking a wee bit, you know, but the list is a bit longer, you know. I mean, intellectually, we know we cannot grasp the ever-changing. Does anybody not know this? We know we can't grasp the ever-changing, but we heroically try. Intellectually, we know that our sense of, of selfing and self-view is, is an appearance. You know, we, the, the actual, even the intellectual understanding of non-self makes a lot of sense. But we keep find ourselves in the habit of self-making. Now, the list could be very... I mean, I could go on all night just with the list. <laughs> it's kind of long, and it, it can sound a little depressing, but does anybody not recognize these areas of dissonance? Does anybody not recognize these areas of these gaps and, and this kind of very strange, kind of paradoxical way we have between our aspirations and our lives, and it's meant to make us squirm. They are the gaps, the places we live where there's discrepancy and difference between our intentions, our aspirations, and our values, and our embodiment. Now, what do we do with that awareness? Because initially it sounds like bad news, doesn't it? And we so easily move into judgment about it, you know, and especially meditators, they're really good at this, you know, because before you came to practice, it was kind of enough to just try and get through life as a relatively decent person without killing anybody or stealing anything, you know. And then, and then you, you come into this practice, you know, and boy, does that portfolio of, uh, uh, of aspiration get so much bigger, you know. What, no longer enough just to be a decent person, you know, and I got to be kind, I got to be compassionate, I got to be peaceful, I got to be mindful, and there's just so much more to judge, isn't there? <laughs> it's like we've increased our judgment field. Hmm? Now, I don't think dissonance is bad news. I don't think the awareness of dissonance is bad news at all, and I think judgment is just one thing we could do with it. But, you know, you read the early texts and, and you really, it, it becomes so clear that, you know, 2,600 years ago, this was the issue. And the, the Buddha clearly recognized this, you know, he clearly recognized that there is a tension in waking up, there is a tension in learning to live a, wake, a life of wakefulness. Now, when we view this dissonance as being negative, 
we want to give up, we despair, we, we judge, we feel it's impossible, you know, we make long lists of our failures, we feel filled with self-blame. But we could recognize, I think, very much as the Buddha did, that this is where we practice. This is what our practice is concerned with. This is a dissonance we're learning to heal. It's within these gaps, these discrepancies, that we're actually invited to investigate and to cultivate and to deepen. You know, there's several early discourses where the Buddha speaks so, I I think, so kindly and, and so compassionately around recognizing the painfulness of dissonance, you know, and speaking to students who come to him, you know, feeling that, you know, so much of what's going on inwardly is just so embedded and so intractable and so habitual and so lifelong that they feel they can never be free of it. And and the Buddha never recommended just this kind of one-dimensional, well, just be aware or be present. You know, he recommended all of these avenues, you know, of investigation, of cultivation, of wise effort. And, you know, every time he goes through this list of recommending how to, how to practice within dissonance, you know, it's always before every antidote, you know, he uses a phrase, and if it still arises, you know, if it still arises. It doesn't say if it still arises again, you schmuck. You know, <laughs> it's as if it still arises. I mean, there's there's just that acknowledgement, you know, of really how challenging the path is if we're really concerned with awakening, and just the patience that's needed to come again and again and again to those places of dissonance without judgment, and to really genuinely recognize. This is where we practice. This is where we're learning to heal the gaps. We see this, this curious coexistence in our lives. Because, you know, if you take some moments to genuinely reflect on your aspirations in this practice, and I really encourage that, because I think some people are afraid of that reflection. You know, they're afraid of having aspirations even because they're so afraid of failure or so afraid of impossible, it's impossible for them. You know, but I think it is so crucial. In fact, there's many traditions, you know, where you would spend months, if not years, reflecting on your aspiration before you ever sat down on a cushion. Because this is what gives meaning, it gives a context, it gives a sense of direction to your path. But we see, even if we do that reflection, there's this curious coexistence of these aspirations and these very deep longings of the human heart. And they're coexisting and living alongside, you know, sometimes a lifetime of emotional and psychological habit patterns. But they are coexisting. So to unpack this, I want to unpack this, this word embodiment a little bit. And I think of about three, I think of three areas of embodiment. The first is what we've been talking a lot about already on this retreat. What does it mean to, an embodied, to be an embodied human being? 
to live in a way in which we inhabit the body fully. The second area of embodiment I want to reflect on a little is the attitudes and the qualities, the embodiment of the attitudes and qualities that transform our hearts and lives. And the third area I want to look at is what does the embodiment of insight actually look like for us? So the first area of embodiment, the embodiment of the body with mindfulness and insight. Now, it's clear how much, and we've spoken about it so much already, but how much value this teaching gives to being established in the body, this practicing within this very basic area of gap and separation between mind, heart, and body. Now, it's very clear when we check this out ourselves in any moment that when the heart and mind are disconnected from the body, where do they go? Hmm? We often think, oh, I'm lost in the past or I'm lost in the future. But that's literally actually not true. We get lost in thought. We get lost in thoughts about the past. We get lost in thoughts about the future. And we get lost in preoccupations and proliferations and turmoil. So it's no surprising that such a large section of the Satipatthana concerns itself with mindfulness of the body. As the Buddha said, everything you need to understand is going to be understood within the length of this body. Walt Whitman put it that everything we have ever done, do or will do, we do within this body. Now the body, as you experience, it's always a present moment experience. It is an interactive process in mandala, uh, interactive mandala of process and conditions. And as I mentioned really on the first day, whether sitting, standing, walking, lying down, coming or going, eating, going to the bathroom, whatever one is doing, establish mindfulness in the body. I wonder how you're doing with that. The Buddha went on, went, even went so far as to say that when there is no mindfulness of the body, there is no mindfulness at all. It's an interesting idea. Because, and, and, and to, to think of how that is for us. Because where are we when we're not established in the body? Leaning backwards, leaning forwards unleashing the sense doors to prowl the world, lost in rumination, obsession, preoccupation. This is not how most of us really wish to live. Yet we can come back, and we do that again and again, to know the body is the body. It sounds simple, doesn't it? But it's complicated. I mean, if you really dislike your body for one reason or another, which is not uncommon, it's hardly a place you want to inhabit, is it? I mean, if, if you're living with chronic pain or chronic illness, it feels almost instinctive to flee, you know, to go somewhere else. If you dislike your appearance, you know, you don't want to be in the body. You don't want to know this body. You want to be apart from it. 
There are so many reasons why embodiment is so challenging. And I think this is, you know, maybe particularly true for, for women. I, I was saying to Madeline before we came in that my, my partner now works a great deal with anorexic children. And, you know, it tells me about young girls as young as seven being hospitalized with anorexia. And I think, how much does that young girl want to be in her body? It doesn't want to be in her body. Yet every moment we do come back, we soften and we undo some of that self-aversion. We undo some of that self-judgment. We undo some of those powerful habit patterns. (coughs) I shared with you in the past that lovely little poem that says, you know, my body, you are so kind to sit and wait for me when I am gone. And when I return, it is to you. (laughs) Now, establishing mindfulness within the body, of course, is much more than just being present. It's about learning that it is possible to step out of the world of self-directed aversion, that it's it's possible to step out of the world of, of our emotional and thought constructions, it's possible to step out of the world of our habits and our reactions and, and our compulsions to a much more responsive way of being present. And learning to be present within the body, we're learning to align ourselves with the reality and the truth of process. Now, in Buddhist psychology, we actually don't speak about mind and body or heart and body. And actually, in Western philosophy, you know, this was a concept that was introduced, you know, that there's some sort of separation and also a hierarchy, you know, where the mind was far, something far superior than the body. Um, But in Buddhist psychology, we don't speak about these as being two entities that are only kind of vaguely or intermittently related. We always speak about mind-slash-body or heart-slash-body. And I I think as we learn to be more embodied, it becomes really transparent, it becomes more more apparent, really, how, just how very transparent that divide is between mind-heart and somatic experience. We begin to see the way, the, the feel the way, in which mind-heart is shaping body, in which body is shaping mind and heart, we begin to have the capacity to experience that shaping process. You know, the body of sadness, the body of depression, the body of excitement, the body of obsession. And, And actually, we also begin to see the way that when contractedness starts to happen within the mind about how that division becomes more extreme between mind and body. How, you know, when we're really lost in thought and lost in rumination and lost in obsession, it's almost like the body just disappears. You know, there's simply no awareness that the body is. But we learn to investigate that, those kind of separations and those gaps through mindfulness of the body. And it becomes a very powerful and a very accessible means of beginning to investigate the landscape of our emotional and psychological world that can often feel so accessible. To truly embody the body 
is a movement into process language. The process of the body, the process of emotion, that sadness is happening, anxiety is happening, rather than these much more solid edifices of I am sad and hopeless. So we start to step out of those very closed rooms of preoccupation, those very closed worlds of self-view and self-shaping and reclaiming the felt sense of the body as this fluid changing process. And embodying the body in an intentional way, of course, is to inhabit our life in an intentional way. The second dimension of embodiment I I think I want to really reflect on lies within this, uh, the kind of intentions and the attitudinal commitments we bring to ourselves, to our lives, to the people we engage with, with how we engage with the world. And mindfulness, sati, is never um, attitudinally or emotionally neutral. It carries and is imbued with those very core attitudes and intentions of kindness, of compassion, and of renunciation. It's it's what underpins all wise mindfulness. And without those attitudes, we probably don't even have mindfulness. We probably have attention regulation. And we actually start to see how much kindness and compassion lie at the heart of this path of awakening, of of bringing struggle and suffering to an end. Lie, and kindness and compassion and renunciation actually, lie at the heart of forming wise and trusting relationships with ourselves and with all the people that come into our lives. They are the intentions, the the naturalized attitudes that are at the heart of all wise action, all wise speech, all wise thought, all the ways that we reach out to touch the world around us because it's these intentions that truly allow us to be a conscious participant in this world, in healing our planet and in healing our world that is so fractured and so wounded by ill will and by hatred and by prejudice and by greed. And it is also kindness and compassion and renunciation that really enables us to meet all events and experiences in our lives without fear and without resistance and without judgment. And these qualities, if we, as we've spoken about them already, are not qualities that are separate from insight. They are the embodiment of insight. They are the natural expression of understanding. Now, they are qualities, of course, that are implicit in how we practice, but they're also qualities that are much more explicitly developed and cultivated. The Buddha never speaks about kindness and compassion as just these these kind of like unexpected encounters or these accidental moments. He said, if we want to live a life of compassion, you know, we cultivate compassion. If we want to live a life of kindness, we cultivate kindness. We don't wait for it to come. 
Kindness and compassion really is learning to care. It's learning to care for adversity. It's learning to care for affliction that we inevitably meet in our lives. But it's also about widening the circle of our concern. You know, again, in, in, the, in the suttas and the discourses, one sees so clearly, you know, the, always this question of why do we practice? You know? And the Buddha is so clear, you know, we practice out of a care for the well-being of all beings. We practice out of compassion for the, for the suffering that exists around us. It is always about widening the circle of concern, not about abandoning ourselves or somehow making ourselves less important or diminishing our own conflicts or anguish, but really stepping into the universal story and knowing that widening that circle of concern to embrace all beings, that includes this being. As it says in the, you know, in the Metta Sutta, with friendliness for the whole world, should one cultivate a boundless heart above, below, and all around, without distinction, without hate, and without ill will, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, whenever, we may, whenever one is awake, may one stay with this recollection, this quality of mindfulness. This is called the best way of living in this world, here and now. We learn to extend that intention of care and kindness into our felt and lived experience in our own lives and in the world around us, our own bodies, the story of all bodies, widening our awareness, including those we love and care for and those we don't know, knowing that all beings like us long for to be free of pain and distress, fear and loneliness, knowing that all beings like us long for acceptance and peace and respect and dignity, and knowing that all beings like us hold these seeds within us. We hold the seeds within us we've seen to develop unfortunate and sad tendencies of ill will and hatred and judgment that disconnect us from the family of beings. But we also hold the seeds of great joy and great equanimity and great compassion. What I have always seen and really noticed so much in my own practice and in teaching that the the journey from aversion and ill will, from fear and alienation to kindness and compassion and responsiveness, I think this is the biggest shift anybody makes in their practice. I think it's the most powerful shift anybody makes in the path. And again, in in that making that shift, we're concerning ourselves with the kind of footprint we leave upon the world and we leave upon our own hearts with our thoughts and words and actions and choices. And ill will, we must see, leaves such a big footprint. We hear the echoes of it in our own lives. 
you know, we feel the, the impact of it upon our own hearts. The Buddha never underestimated the power of ill will. It is not easy to learn to embody kindness and compassion, and we don't have to feel it in order to live with kindness and compassion. It is a commitment of the heart. It is always making a different commitment than the commitment, the more unconscious commitment to ill will, and we never have to feel it to do it. It's not easy to learn to embody kindness and compassion, but it's so much harder on ourselves and so much harder on the world around us to embody ill will. And, you know, there is something about, and this is a path of learning, you know, and I think part of that path of learning is restraint. Now, I know restraint can have a lot of negative associations of control and suppression and inhibition and sometimes it's been forced upon us, you know, be a nice girl, you know, act nice, you know, control those behaviors, you know. Recently I was teaching in Italy and I started talking about restraint and um, I'm translated in Italy and the translator just stopped when I used the word restraint. And maybe he was uninformed, but none of the other 40 English-speaking Italians in the group of 100 or so also could find a word, a positive word, in Italian for restraint. All of the words were negative. Don't laugh. (laughs) We're not stereotyping anything here, right? But all of the words had negative associations. And I think this is not belonging just to Italy either, by the way. You know. I do see a lot of times people say, restraint, well, that's some sort of suppression of authenticity or spontaneity or creativity. You know? Why shouldn't I just go out and kick the car? You know? <laughs> you know, you know, why shouldn't I express my emotions? freely and without any checking. Uh, well, a lot of people do that, by the way. <laughs> you know, it, it's not actually, you know, we wouldn't actually, when we go and see somebody sort of kicking a car wheel or, you know, shouting at their passing driver, you know, we wouldn't think, oh, look at that wonderful spontaneity, you know. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic, you know. You know, so be aware, sometimes we have, you know, particularly views around spontaneity, you know. So the Buddha, she did always frame restraint as a virtue, as something noble, as something wholesome. And I often think of restraint as a kind of a pregnant pause of mindfulness. It's what allows us just to pause for a moment before the words fly out of our mouths. Pause for a moment before that reactivity gets embodied and expressed. To pause for a moment to be able to check in on what's actually going on inwardly as that impulse arises. 
you know, to pause for a moment before I go for that second plate of food I don't actually need or jump into that judgmental pathway that I know is so toxic to myself. This is what restraint is about. It's cultivating that mindful pause, which actually is an embodiment of kindness and compassion for the world and for ourselves. Because that pause... That pause actually allows us to learn that ill will and fear are also processes. They're not life sentences. Kindness and compassion are processes. They are cultivated. And restraint allows a moment of choice. Allows a moment of choice to go down that pathway or to go down the other pathway. And to have those choices informed by understanding, informed by insight, not by what's right or what's wrong, what's good or what's bad, but informed by the understanding of what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. And those choices are a tremendous freedom and a tremendous blessing in our lives. And they are part of the path of embodiment. Now, the third area of embodiment I want to talk about is the embodiment of insight and understanding, aligning our hearts, minds, lives with with the way things actually are, the eternal laws, the universal laws. Now, this is not about manufacturing ideals. You know, it's very easy to live in a world of shoulds that we impose upon ourselves, that we impose upon others. And each moment of should, of course, generally holds a thread of aversion, of rejection. It's often a signal of a departure from what actually is into disembodiment. So what are the insights we are asked to embody? I mean, in my experience, you know, a lot of Westerners generally come into this practice with quite a lot of understanding. You know, we are encouraged in our culture to be somewhat self-aware, to be somewhat reflective people, you know. to it, it, It's valued in our culture. So often when you listen to us up here, you know, what we say is very rarely news to you. We're often kind of giving language to understandings you already have. You know, we're often articulating understandings Uh, that you've already glimpsed. I mean, you know, when we talk about impermanence, is it the first time you've heard about that? Don't think so, you know. We, We have that body of knowledge within ourselves. We know we live in an uncertain and changing world and that impermanence runs through everything, through people, through events, and through ourselves, through our thoughts, our bodies, our experiences, our emotions. We know that our sense of identity, in a way, is only an illusion, an appearance of solidity. If we reflect on all of the thoughts and experience and events we've encountered in this life that are now gone, we know about change. We know about unsatisfactoriness. We don't need to tell you about it from up here. We know that we can't rely upon or control the world of conditions. We can't do this inwardly, 
and we can't do it outwardly. And we know that we can't find refuge in the unreliable. The, the Buddha put it, and I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit, he said, why would I imagine that me, this being, who is subject to change, subject to birth, subject to aging, and subject to death, why would I imagine that this being could possibly find refuge in anything that is also subject to birth, subject to change, and subject to death? It makes no sense. Many times we know, actually, not only about pain and suffering, but we also kind of know about its causes. We know the power of craving to get and pursue what we don't have. We know the pain of aversion, of trying to get rid of what we do have. And to different, differing degrees, we all know that we, we, we're not an independent self, that we're not an autonomous reified self. It only takes a little bit of investigation for us to see the changing face of self in a single day, in a single hour, from happy to unhappy, from hopeful to despairing, from mindful to dissociated. So we know all of this. Yet there can be a considerable gap, considerable dissonance between the knowing and the embodiment of that in our thoughts and our words and in acts. One neuroscience friend of mine described it as conscious incompetence. We know it, but we don't know it. Another Western psychologist describes it as discrepancy thinking. Discrepancy thinking. We know what's happening, yet we almost feel compelled to engage in familiar patterns of habit and reactivity. So this is what we're concerned with in the path. It's healing this dissonance. Healing these gaps. Naturalize our knowing and our understanding so that it sinks into our bones and changes and transforms the way that we see, the way that we respond the way that we live our lives and you know there's a lot of factors involved in healing that dissonance and in healing those gaps you know the factors of mindfulness the factors of investigation the factors of dedication and intention the 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 factors of cultivating the inner stillness and curiosity and calm but you know what all of this is within our reach all of this is within our capacity. All of this, all of these qualities are cultivated moment to moment. They're not ideals or dis- distant hopes or dreams. These are present moment cultivations so that the knowing can turn into understanding. That the knowing can turn into an understanding that changes how we see the world. Insight has implications. If we actually really do understand and know the nature of uncertainty, of unpredictability, we don't try to build refuges on shifting signs. 
if we know the nature, deeply know and understand the, the nature of change that runs through all things, it has implications. It means that everything that we encounter has written upon it the invitation to relinquish holding, to let go, and to live in that light. And that is a light of freedom. If we truly sense that, you know, all of the ideas of self are edifices constructed and built out of clinging, that has implications to actually dissolve those edifices and to become that fluid, ever-changing being that we can be. Responsive, receptive, and engaged with the world moment to moment, and we learn to hold this process of cultivation with far more kindness and compassion and spaciousness, releasing the kind of prisons of self-definition. Embodiment starts as an uncomfortable question, a very creative uh, discomfort around the questions of dissonance and the questions of embodiment. But it is a creative discomfort. It is a skillful discomfort. The way that the path is really intended in a way to disturb us and to challenge us and to move us from the the almost the familiar and the contractedness of what we know to what we don't know but can know. But can know. And then I think we start to see not just as some grand ideal but actually really the liberation of embodiment in the moment, in all the moments where there is a healing of that dissonance and the naturalization of what we truly value, truly aspire to, and that we live in the light of those aspirations and understandings. Just a moment, a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for your attention. Um, It's a walking period now and then come back for the final sitting of the day and again chanting.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.